You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, the book of Luke is an amazing book in God's Word. The third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and uh, a gospel that is basically communicating that the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone on earth. To me, a great theme verse would be Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Luke is going to present Jesus here in this gospel as the perfect man, uh, the man connected to Adam, but the second Adam, the great Adam, the one who was able to overcome uh, the temptation there in the wilderness and wonderfully win salvation for all who would believe uh, in him. The book of Luke is a doctrinally strong book. You have high Christology uh, found within it. We get to learn of who Jesus is. You have wonderful doxology within the book in the sense that there are many segues of praise, especially in these introductory chapters. Soteriology, eschatology, the study of end times, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, wonderfully given to us here uh, in the book of Luke. But it's also a wonderfully discipleship-oriented book in the sense that a major section of it, I believe the end of chapter 9 all the way through the middle of chapter 19, is primarily dedicated to Jesus' work uh, with uh, his disciples, those who would follow uh, after him. And to me, you could break down this book into four distinct sections. Uh, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, seems to deal with uh, heavy background material. The birth of John, the birth of Jesus, the childhood of Jesus, the ministry of John, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50, seems to deal with the public ministry of Jesus, beginning there in the t uh, synagogue in uh, Nazareth and going all the way through the miracles and the teachings to the multitudes and the casting out of demons. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, things seem to turn towards his followers, towards his disciples, until in chapter 19, you get to the eventual events leading up to the cross of Christ where Jesus won salvation for us. Now, this gospel is interesting because Luke has a beautiful little introductory comment in verse 1 through 4. And these first four verses are one long sentence in the original Greek and are written in the tradition of the finest historical works in Greek literature. And it seems as if this is designed to assure the reader of the capability uh, of the author. Luke isn't going to write the entirety of the book of, of Luke in this high uh, language, but uh, he's going to speak in more of a common uh, kind of language from uh, verse 5 onward. But these first four verses perhaps designed to help us understand who it is that is writing uh, this book. And so he says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke begins here by saying, listen, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the life of Jesus. And verse three, it seemed good to me also to do the same. And of course, Jesus was an extremely public figure, and it seemed everybody at that moment wanted to weigh in on his life. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, felt compelled uh, to do the same. Now, there were those, he said, who were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And so Luke is saying here, I've heard from them, and I've received a detailed account. I've done my interviews. I've talked to the people that I need to talk with. And after interviewing these eyewitnesses and these ministers of the word, which was important because that meant that they were persecuted uh, on account of what they said, which would make them a more reliable source. They were willing to go through physical harm in order to hold fast to their testimony. And so he says, listen, I interviewed all of these people and decided, oh, most excellent Theophilus, to write an orderly account uh, for you. So we know a couple of things there. First of all, we notice that Luke is going to give us an orderly account. And as you read Luke's gospel, it, it includes more uh, words than any of the other gospel writers. It is a very lengthy uh, book, and Luke is very detail-oriented uh, within it. And so there will be uh, order, there, there will be accuracy uh, within uh, this particular uh, book. We also notice here in these first few verses that Luke is writing to someone named uh, Most Excellent Theophilus. Now, when you read the book of Acts, which is basically part two of Luke's gospel, where Luke continues the account of what Jesus had done and taught, uh, but on into after his ascension and once the Spirit was poured out upon the church. As Luke records Luke and Acts, Acts 1 verse 1 tells us that again he wrote to Theophilus. He says in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began uh, to do uh, and teach. And so who is this uh, Theophilus. And some people take just the meaning of the name, that his me name means lover or friend of God, and believe that this is just a symbolic figure that Luke is writing to. But he says of him, most excellent Theophilus, which perhaps lends to the idea that this must have been a man or a political uh, figure or someone of monetary significance because he gives him that title, most excellent uh, Theophilus. And I've even heard some who have conjectured that Luke as a physician, because Paul calls him the beloved physician, uh, that Luke as a physician was potentially a slave and perhaps Theophilus was his master who had lent him freedom in order to travel with Paul and in order to write uh, these things. But either way, Luke writes to Theophilus and then by extension to us by the power of the Spirit, so that, verse 4, you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so this orderly account is designed to stimulate our faith and grow us and to give us a, a certainty concerning what we have already learned uh, about 
Jesus. So this is a faith building kind of book, basically, is what Luke is trying to say. And so just a beautiful thing here. Certainty will flow out of a person's life as they study uh, the book of Luke. Now, in verse 5, Luke moves on and he gets into uh, the first story, the first movement. And, you know, Luke is very detail-oriented, as I've said, so he can't just go to the birth of Jesus. Uh, He can't just go to the uh, early ministry of Jesus. He can't just go to the early ministry of John the Baptist or even the birth of John the Baptist. He goes all the way back to the promise of the birth of John the Baptist. And so we have the setting there in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so Luke, as would be his custom, gives us the historical time marker. We have the days of Herod, king of uh, Judea. Now Herod was an absolute tyrant. And so maybe to put it in our own mindset, you might say something like in the days of Hitler, you know, when, when you hear that phrase, you think immediately of a tyrant, a very dark moment of history uh, for the people there in Germany and in the world. And here you have in the days of Herod, this would be a dark time uh, for the people uh, of Israel. And so in, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, who was basically placed there by the Roman government. And so they're under occupation. This is bad news right off the bat. But in that era, there was this priest, Luke tells us, his name was Zechariah. He came from the division of Abijah, and he has this wife, her name's Elizabeth, and she's a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth have this priestly uh, lineage, which tells us the kind of family that John the Baptist came from. John was within that priestly line, but really in one sense seems to have rejected the priestly line in order to... Uh, be slotted in the prophetic ministry. Now, notice there in verse 6 that when it describes Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke goes back so far as to tell us that they were righteous people. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were godly people. That's why it might be slightly surprising for us to see in verse 7 that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren And both were advanced in years. And so these godly people experienced a really difficult trial. Now, even in our era, barrenness is a ridiculously difficult trial for people to face. But in that era, when you would go through all the difficulties we would face and then additionally experience a social outcast stigma upon you, in that era and in that culture, and sometimes people even believing that there must be some kind of sin that you had committed, what a difficult trial for these two people to experience and to uh, endure. And so I just love this because we're going to see God move wonderfully, move beautifully, move mightily. And this is God's pattern to work in environments of brokenness and 
pain. They had not done any sin that brought this barrenness upon them. And they might have even asked the question, why isn't God blessing us? Surely we've done something wrong. And they would have been wrong on both counts. God was blessing them and they hadn't done anything wrong to bring this upon their lives. But God was slowly but surely behind the scenes working and moving uh, in their lives. And sometimes I've wondered, why didn't God give Elizabeth and Zechariah a, a baby earlier in life? Surely they'd cried out to God and asked the Lord to bless them in that way. But it seems as if, well, for one, we know that God sanctifies us through our trials and through our difficulties. But I'm sure that as well, the Lord was preparing them to have a loose hand uh, when it came to John. He was preparing them to be a, a, a parental unit who said, listen, this child doesn't belong to us. He belongs to the Lord. And I think they would have more easily said that through the trial that they had faced. John was going to have a difficult profession, a difficult life trajectory for parents to watch. He would actually become uh, martyred because he would speak out against the political leaders of his time. Now, verse 8, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour uh, of incense. So he was of the, the uh, division of Abijah, First uh, Chronicles 24, verse 10. And uh, these divisions were created at the time of David. And so twice a year for a week each time, plus major festivals, these divisions would be called for duty. But when his division was on duty, verse 8, uh, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and, you know, not to be involved with changing out the oil or putting in the uh, new bread or anything like that. He was chosen to enter the temple of the Lord and not even put the coals on the altar or anything like that, but to go in and actually burn the incense before the Lord. And the whole multitude, verse 10, of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, for us, as we read these things, it just reads as if, you know, he would have just had his regular duty and job and he's just kind of going in, clocking in, and it's his day to uh, offer the incense. But uh, actually, this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah. Uh, there were probably about 18,000 priests alive at that time. And so it wasn't a regular thing that you got to do this. And they would basically, more than likely, only be able to do this for one day in their entire lives. And so a very serious moment in Zechariah's life, highly anticipated, I'm sure, by Zechariah from the moment that he got the notification that he was going to be able to do this on such and such a day and at such and such an hour. I'm sure that Zechariah was wondering, what will this be like? What will I say? What will I pray uh, to the Lord? And, and just a time of great anticipation. Basically, an assistant would go into the temple and put coals on the altar. Zechariah would go in alone and place the incense on the altar. Then he would pray for the nation, especially more than likely for the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. And the people would gather outside and wait for him to come out and then pronounce an ironic blessing 
upon them. And there, verse 11, appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, nobody had ever told Zechariah about this. Maybe he'd asked some of his other priestly friends, hey, what's it like when you go in and you offer these prayers? And no one had ever said, well, there'll be an angel of the Lord standing there. But there's this angel of the Lord standing there. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Isn't it interesting that the first word from heaven in the book of Luke is the phrase, do not be afraid. You know, this phrase would be repeated often in the book of Luke. And obviously and clearly is a phrase or a concept at least that is repeated quite often throughout God's word. We have a tendency to fear. We have a tendency to panic. And here the word from heaven is do not be afraid. The angel then says, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness. Now, this is beautiful. In one sense, we could just focus on this wonderful truth. God hears the cry of mankind. Here you have an instance where the angel is announcing to the man, Zechariah, you prayed, God heard. Isn't it an amazing thing that God hears the cry of his children? But the question that we might ask is, what prayer had been heard by the Lord. In other words, what prayer did Zechariah pray that God had heard? Was it a prayer that he'd prayed for a child? Well, that's possible, but it had probably been years since Zechariah would have ever dreamed of praying for a child. Probably for him and Elizabeth, that day had passed. I don't think Zechariah there in his old age was actually praying as he burnt incense before the Lord for a child. Because when the Lord announces to him in just a few verses that he will have a child, uh, Zechariah's response, as we'll see in a few verses, is that of unbelief. It doesn't seem as if something that he's even asking for. Or perhaps he was praying not just for a child, but for the Messiah to come. And isn't it interesting that his prayer, perhaps historically, for a child, and his prayer in that moment, perhaps, for the Messiah, both of those prayer requests were going to come to pass in one response from the Lord. Oh, Zechariah's child would not be the Messiah, but he would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so perhaps historically praying for a child and in that moment praying for the Messiah, their child, John, would be an answer to both. And so God is so good. He knows what he's doing. He has his plans and his way of unfolding his will inside of our lives and his ways and his plans are perfect and good and sovereign. And so the angel says to him in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord or maybe even put in a different way, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And Jesus, of course, affirm that about John. He said in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
And so Jesus holding John in high esteem, the angel says, verse 15, he'll be great before the Lord and he'll be a consecrated man. He says in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Elijah's, or excuse me, John's ministry was that of turning people's hearts. And basically, he would be used by the Lord to prepare people for the remedy of the gospel. John was basically pointing out the flaw within mankind's heart, pointing out the sin that mankind needed to repent of, which would prime the hearts of individuals there in Israel for the message of the cross when the church began to preach that message there in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And so just a beautiful thing here, the ministry of John described uh, by the angel. Now, in one sense, the angel is declaring that, that John would fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the return of Elijah. In fact, the final prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, before years of silence from God, uh, prophetically and biblically, was simply this. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the promise was, before the Lord comes, Elijah will come. And here the angel tells Zechariah, your son will come in the spirit and the, in the power of Elijah, and he'll do the very thing that Malachi prophesied of Elijah. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. By the way, isn't that a perfect description of the Holy Spirit working mightily in a person's life? One great evidence of that, when the Holy Spirit is reviving a group of people and moving wonderfully, Fathers' hearts are turned towards their children. There's a compassion for their children, a love for their children, a desire for their children. And can you imagine, in any culture, on any continent, in any season of time, if all of the fathers in that culture turned towards their children and said, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to love you, to care for you, to be faithful to you, to speak into your life, to serve you, to, to encourage you, to lift you up. If that were to occur, you would see wonderful effects in the culture uh, that is represented. And so here, part of John's ministry would, that, would be that he would turn father's hearts towards their children. Just a powerful reality. And hey, the more our hearts are turned towards our children, the better. Now, Zechariah, verse 18, said to the angel, of course, in response, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, 
you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, this is interesting here because Zechariah responds, obviously, with unbelief. I mean, he basically says here, how will I know that this is going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And Gabriel in a moment will say, you'll be unable to speak because you did not believe my words. But isn't it true here, looking at Zechariah's words, that sight is quite often the enemy of faith. Zechariah, all he can see is his own limitations. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. We're not the kind of people that go around having babies. I don't know if you've noticed that kind of thing, angel. I don't know if you've observed that. And all he can see is his own limitation. He's unable to see the God who is stronger than his own limitations. Now, Gabriel sort of alludes to this in verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. It's as if Gabriel here, fresh from the throne room of God, there to speak and introduce this wonderful promise to this man. It's as if Gabriel is shocked by Zechariah's words. I mean, there's Zechariah inside of the temple offering this prayer before the Lord. The temple was merely a uh, picture on earth of the heavenly reality of the throne room of God. And that's where Gabriel had come from. And here is Zechariah saying, oh man, I'm, I'm an old man. I don't have the strength for this. I, I'm too weak for this. He's consumed with himself and seeing himself. He's saying, and Zechariah's like, I'm this and my wife is that. And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You're seeing your limitations. I wish you could just see where I had have just come from. The very presence of God himself. This is good news. And I just love that contrast. I am an old man versus I am Gabriel. You know, the unseen realm should be an aid to our faith from time to time. And so Gabriel says to Zechariah, listen, man, you're going to be silent now uh, until the birth of your son. When these promises of God are, fulfill are fulfilled, you're going to be silent. And I love that. Uh, the angel doesn't say, well, forget it. There's going to be a new priest that comes in tomorrow and we'll work with him. No, God's grace was continuing to move in Zechariah's life. He was still chosen for these promises, but he would not be able to enjoy God's work as loudly as he could have had he simply believed. Now the people, verse 21, were waiting for Zechariah and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And so he comes out and everybody knows something happened inside the temple there. He makes signs and eventually when his season and time was over, he goes back home and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And this, of course, wasn't a, a miraculous conception like it would be with Mary. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah came together and had a normal sexual relationship. But God intervened and used the normal course of life to create a pregnancy inside of Elizabeth. 
and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In other words, Elizabeth is rejoicing, even privately for five months there, because she realizes that the thing that people had despised her for or had, you know, felt sorry for her about, the Lord was taking that away. And of course, Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.